Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Comedian Tushar Singh grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, in a strict Indian family, which set him up for years of awkwardness and loads of stand-up comedy material. As a chubby kid and the only Indian in his grade at school, Tushar recalls sticking out like a big brown thumb. Now, he tackles controversial issues and difficult topics while making audiences laugh. Singh faces his complicated Indian identity in the documentary American Hasi. Later this hour, he'll tell us about the film that follows him and his number one fan, his mom, on a five-week comedy tour starting in Mumbai and ending in New Delhi. First, you could say that the Atlanta-based violinist Alice Hong does not believe in boundaries. That is boundaries that confine classical music to one particular audience. Her creativity also crosses categories. In addition to work as an international concert violinist, Alice Hong is a composer, photographer, and about to make her film debut in Red Notice, a movie with Dwayne Johnson, Gal Gadot, and Ryan Reynolds. She joins us now via Zoom. Alice Hong, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me, Lois. Well, earlier this summer, you performed at the Highlands Cashers Chamber Music Festival. You just returned from the Colorado Music Festival, and you will fly off to the Lake George Music Festival at the end of the month. How does it feel to be performing in front of live, in-person audiences again? It's been quite surreal. I've been fairly lucky because throughout the pandemic, I was part of a quartet that was performing candlelight concerts, and these are concerts that are happening all over the world. But in Atlanta, 
they've done such a great job of making sure it's pandemic friendly and everyone is socially distanced and we're masked and the audience is masked and we're outside most of the time. And so we've had been performing these concerts since September and we were probably one of the few groups that were playing in person and getting that stimulation from an audience and remembering what it's like to play for people. <laughs> so I know we've been really lucky through the pandemic being able to do that. But now in the summer, we've actually had these mask-free and safe concerts. And it's just such a different experience even to be able to see the faces of the audience members and to see how they're reacting to what we're doing. And the energy is incomparable. I never knew how much I took that for granted before the pandemic. So oh. it's been great. Yeah, to be able to see how listeners are responding with their faces, with their entire bodies, as well as your fellow musicians on stage, because while masked, eye contact isn't quite as easy. Yes, it's weird, because when you wear a mask, somehow you can't hear as well or see as well, even though... It's not a direct correlation <laughs> when you're wearing a mask. It, the perception changes how you relate with each other as musicians, but now in particular with the Delta variant, masks will probably be required inside of concert venues again. And as you saw during the earlier months of the pandemic, you can make it work. Yes, it's not ideal, but it's great that music can still live on despite all the things that are going on in the world right now. Indeed. Alice, you have a doctorate of music degree. You compose as well as perform. Your interest in photography is beyond a hobby. And thank you, you started acting in 2019. What inspired you to try out that new artistic medium? So even though I was able to perform in candlelight concerts, it was still a really different time for musicians. And we didn't know what our future looked like. And if there was a post-pandemic era coming anytime soon. But the film industry in Atlanta kind of transformed during the pandemic in a way that helped the film community in Atlanta, because so much of what was happening in LA came here to film instead. And the film industry kind of took it upon themselves to try to make it all work during the pandemic in a big way. So the opportunity to be in this movie with The Rock and Gal and Ryan kind of fell into my lap. It, they were looking for a violinist and I guess I fit the role. And uh, so I moved into a film bubble for five weeks in October and it was the craziest experience because I had never been on a set in my life. But now I'm living in a hotel with all of these incredible people of that field and all these performers. And I just fell in love with the fact that I was able to perform even though it wasn't the medium that I've always performed on with my violin or through music. Well, I guess in a way I was with my violin, but the purpose of it was totally different medium and I just I loved that I could contribute in a way that I had never contributed before as a performer and 
So throughout the pandemic, even though there weren't a lot of concerts happening, I was able to find myself on set. And sometimes I was able to be a completely different person from who I was. And that was refreshing too. I've never been able to do that. (laughs) To be another person. I think opera singers enjoy that aspect of being a musician is they get to inhabit a role of a completely different person. Now, Alice, this is all terrific musician, curious about acting, but we are talking about making your film debut and not a little local indie film, but a $130 million Netflix movie, Red Notice. This may be the biggest feature commitment by Netflix so far. How did you go from being concert violinist to appearing in this movie? So what I've learned about the film industry is that everything is a little more spontaneous than I'm used to. So I just randomly got an email that was forwarded to Michael Kurth of the ASO. He's a bassist. And he just sent this off and said, maybe some of you can do this. It looks legitimate. (laughs) (laughs) And so I answered this email that just asked for a picture, a short recording of me playing and my age and height. And that was all that there was to the audition process. And I didn't hear anything for a month. I didn't expect to hear anything at all. But then I got another email from the casting director who asked me to be ready to move into a hotel tomorrow (laughs) with three weeks worth of luggage. And I did it. So your role then is that of a violinist, Michael, a musician, a double bassist himself, saw this ad or publicity notice, and you are playing a violinist. You didn't have to audition a speaking role. No, luckily. (laughs) It's funny because in this movie, it doesn't matter how I sound. It just matters how I look. So that was a funny transition for me, having to worry about what I can do on this instrument when in this movie, they just wanted someone who looked like they really loved playing the violin in a band at a masquerade party. Now, let's back up. Can you tell us quickly what Red Notice is about? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> it, it's obviously an action film with the likes of Dwayne Johnson and Gal Gadot. So the two scenes that I was in, there was a lot of action and there were weapons drawn and special effects done. But I'm not quite sure what it's about besides the fact that the three main characters are art thieves. And I think that the movie will take place a lot in Italy, but they couldn't go to Italy. They actually made the Italian set in Atlanta and it looks exactly like the museum that it's supposed to be set in, but just in a studio instead. That's what Dwayne, Gal and Ryan are doing. They're stealing the Mona Lisa. (laughs) I'm curious, when you talk about weapons, I picture you using your violin bow as like a laser gun. Did you get to do something like that? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> what What did you do? What are you doing on screen? 
So there is a masquerade ball scene where the villain of the movie is hosting a party and he hired a band to make sure that it was the most classy event of the movie, I believe. And while we're performing on stage, there is a dance number done by The Rock and I believe Gal Gadot. And I guess they're discussing <laughs> their next heist. <laughs> but I think our role is actually quite prominent in terms of how much screen time we get as musicians. I don't think musicians usually get a lot of time on screen. Oh, I love this movie even before it's come out. <laughs> when we were filming, it was really nerve wracking because the first time on set, they cleared everyone out except for the band. And we had these probably multi-million dollar cameras flying in at us at once. We only got two full takes of the song and they also didn't give us the music to what we were playing. So we were figuring it out by ear and making sure that we matched with the recording that was playing in the background. And just to know that this director of a multi-million dollar film only has us right now on their agenda, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, I would think heady might <laughs> be the word. Alice, did you get to meet any of those big name stars? I think if it weren't for COVID, we would have a little bit more interaction. But because of all the safety precautions, we were kept very far away from the cast. In fact, the way that they filmed the scenes was that they would get the cast on the set first and they would film that scene. They'd get them off and then they'd film the exact same scene with us non-cast performers. And what they're planning to do in post is layer all of these shots that they got so that everyone is on the screen at the same time but we weren't in the same room that's why it took so long to film because we were technically done with our scene the first day that we were on set but we were there for four more weeks because they had to do all of this layering and reshooting of that same exact scene to make sure everyone was included and it looked real and it would fit together in the end i can only imagine how you must have been comparing this artistic process, this being filmmaking and all that is required in post-production, comparing that with having just a couple of days to rehearse with an orchestra before you give a concert. Was that going through your head? Absolutely. With all of the power that the film industry has in post-production, they could take any performance and completely transform it by the time it ends up on the screen somewhere. And with classical music, we do get just a few rehearsals at most usually. And, and then we put this performance on stage where anything can happen, but that's probably the most magical part about it. And throughout the pandemic, I did a lot of recording projects to make sure that we were still making music in some way and getting it out there. And, and even getting used to that process made the first live performance such a different experience after the pandemic had taken away so many of our live performances. And even throughout the summer, having that experience to play for a live audience again was surreal in a way that I was more nervous, but I was also so much more grateful and knew that I wouldn't want to take this experience and this adrenaline rush and 
this, even the fear that comes with performing sometimes for granted. Alice Hong, violinist, photographer, and now actor. We'll return to more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for joining me. If you just tuned in, my guest is the violinist, photographer, and now actor, Alice Hong. Alice, you are also a photographer. You have your own photography business. Did your eye for photography in anyway inform your acting, your role taking in the movie Red Notice? Did you have a thought about what the director was looking for behind the lens because you spend some time behind a lens as well? Yes and no, because what I realized from being in the film industry, albeit briefly, is that you never know what the director wants. And the vision doesn't come clear until you finally see the product on screen. And that was an experience I thought was very interesting on set. When you were watching even the big name stars working, it doesn't resemble anything like what the experience is like once all the music is put in, all the editing and the coloring and everything like that. However, after I've left my first set experience, I think it really informed my photography because I realized when you look through the lens for the first time, so much can happen between that moment and what you what your final product is. So I would say it's a little bit of the other way around where my experience on set informed my experience as a photographer and the work that I do as a photographer. Oh, wow. You mentioned your Candlelight series. Is that part of your Project Mainstream? So Project Mainstream is something that I started in Toronto after I spent a summer at Toronto Summer Music Festival. We had an entrepreneurship class with Andrew Kwan, and his main topic for us was always, what are you going to do about classical music audiences in the future? His point during our classes was that the classical music audience right now is primarily a senior audience. So he would always ask us, what are you gonna do when they're gone? And we couldn't come up with a tangible answer during that time, of course, but I thought about it for a long time. And 
Project Mainstream was born because I really wanted to find a way to put visuals to classical music that were appealing to a younger audience and something relatable to something that they would watch on YouTube and wouldn't have to go to a concert hall to see if they've never been to a concert hall before. And so Project Mainstream became this thing that brought a lot of musicians together and we played a lot of fun arrangements and also just classical music, but we would make videos to it. And it's slightly related to candlelight concerts because candlelight is all about sharing classical music with audiences that wouldn't necessarily go to a concert hall or have, haven't been and would like to. And their concept is very simple. We'll play classical music, but the audience is perfect because they'll have hundreds of candles around us and the lights are all dimmed. And even if it's their first time listening to a piece, it's an inviting place for them to be just because it's such a beautiful place to be. And our violist Josiah Co does a wonderful job of talking about all the pieces that we're going to play, why it's important for us to listen, why it's cool that we're here playing this piece and they're here listening to it and we're, we're having this connection. And at the end, we make sure that we're, we're available for them to talk to us. And we've made some really great connections and met a lot of interesting people. And it just always reminds me how important it is to have classical music in the world, even though it doesn't always seem like the most relevant thing at the time. So you have performed candlelight concerts here in Atlanta at City Winery and Trolley Barn. What music do you choose to play for these audiences who are gathered but may not have heard anything classical before? So we have a number of great programs. Some of them are more heavily classical than others. We have a Beethoven quartet program and we play six different movements from Beethoven's early, middle, and late works. program but the audience is so ready for it and we also have a program featuring the four seasons by Vivaldi Four Seasons by Astor Piazzolla. And 
are so many fun connections that we can make with music that is very purely part of the classical canon and also things that are more relevant today or pop songs that they would hear on the radio right now and the audience is so receptive to it and they will leave comments with us either in person or on our social media saying that their favorite piece was for example the Max Richter spring recomposed or that they loved the winter movement of Vivaldi because it was so epic and that it was their first time listening to classical music ever. Oh, wow. That is so refreshing. I could see where you would feel just uplifted after that. Your music video and violin remix of Positions by Ariana Grande was beautifully done and very well crafted. or covers of contemporary pop music also be a gateway for classical listeners, for new classical <laughs> listeners. Oh, I can't believe you watched that. <laughs> so doing music videos like that is actually very out of my comfort zone because I did grow up so much with classical music. So many pop songs are out there influencing people every day and what I don't think a lot of people realize is that the root of so many of those songs come from classical music or involve classical instruments. So for example, Positions starts with a viola pizzicato. <laughs> and that's something I would notice as a classical musician, but I don't know if the average listener would care or notice something like that. And so that's what inspired me to make this video. But in general, I've done several shows for schools bridging the gap between classical music and pop songs by showing the fact that this element in this classical piece shows up in this pop song that you heard this morning on the radio. Or the Beatles would really not be who they are without all the classical instruments that they used. And I think it's always fun to see that connection and also remind myself even and others of the fact that everything we listen to now, no matter how far it seems from classical music, has roots in classical music. And it's not quite as unrelated as we think. Yeah, we're all related. Alice, how would you describe your own style of composition? I think I was very heavily influenced as a child by the Chinese songs that my mom would listen to. Whenever we would drive to my piano classes or to Chinese school, my mom would always put on a tape, usually Teresa Tang, who uh, was a huge singer in China during her time, although unfortunately she died very young. But my mom loved her so much, and the harmonies were always what were playing in my head when nothing else was 
going on. to piano pieces by Ravel and Debussy and I just felt so much affinity towards their musical language even when I was a kid and I think even now I'm I look up to the impressionistic composers so my composition style has kind of brought together the impressionistic influences that I had through my piano studies and also the music that my mom would listen to and often people make a comment that it sounds very Chinese or you must really like Ravel. So <laughs> I think it is kind of obvious that that is what I love. But I think as I grow older, I've taken a step back from what I write. I think I've been able to branch out from that a little bit more and, and just find my personal voice. And I will always love that music and I will always be proud to say that I have influences from there. But now I think I'm developing Alice Holmes' voice. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what was it like growing up in Atlanta as a serious young musician? What opportunities were there for you here? Atlanta is an amazing city for young classical musicians to grow up in, but it's kind of unassuming in a way because we don't have all of the big music conservatories and music societies that a place like New York or Boston or Chicago or whatnot would have. And yet we have the best teachers I could have asked for growing up personally. And many of those teachers are part of the Atlanta Symphony. And I'm always in awe of this symphony because of the influence they had on my life. If they weren't here, I wouldn't be a musician for sure because all of my teachers were part of the symphony at the, when I was growing up. And another part of my upbringing that really helped me develop my love for music was the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra. Yes. I was part of this for three years. And those three years, I still look back as the highlight of my music education with the combination of the very hardworking students, the high standards that uh, Maestro Jerry Flint would give us, and the way that he nurtured us as the conductor on the podium is something that would last for anyone. Oh, that's absolutely beautiful. What a tribute to our orchestra and Jerry Flint. 
and the musical life of Atlanta, of which you are a vital part. Alice Hong, this has been absolute joy for me. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. Renaissance woman, Alice Hong. You can learn more about this multi-talented artist on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, Tushar Singh, the Indian-American, took his stand-up on an unusual comedy tour of India that's now a documentary film. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Most mothers would be hesitant to go on a comedy tour with their son, but not Tushar Singh's mom. The New York-based comedian's documentary, American Hasi, explores his five-week comedy tour across multiple cities in India with his mom. When Singh was in town for the film's premiere in 2019, he joined me in the WABE studios and began with explaining how he developed a love for stand-up. There's not a class that you can take. (laughs) There's not a master's program. Um, But I think uh, with a a certain amount of self-loathing and self-hatred, you can really do anything in the stand-up world. Uh, I actually, I was always writing down little notes growing up. Uh, I found out years later that those were premises for jokes, but at the time I didn't really know what those were. So I was always scribbling down little thoughts, not like a diary. And then eventually in college, I saw someone perform at one of the holy functions and he he was hosting. Uh, His name was Jimmy. And I was a freshman. He was a sophomore from Emory. I went to Georgia Tech. Yes. And um, I remember seeing him and I was in I would love stand up. I watched I started watching, you know, Comedy Central, all the content that came out in the 90s for Comedy Central and all the HBO specials. And I was just enamored by this art form where you know, the conversation is a person tells a joke and the audience talks by laughing. And it's it was it kind of blew me away and I was just drawn to it, never thinking that I could do something like that. And um, I watched this kid just be natural and so good on stage and I've never met him. And I was like, if he can do it, I can do it. And I tried out the audition the next year, failed miserably. Um and that was when I was 22, 23. Um, and then since then, you know, I took years between because once again, no one says, you know, what would you do? You just do this and you go here and you keep on doing it. There's no rules. Um, and then eventually, you know, I moved to New York in 2005. And that's when I started doing, you know, pay $5 and buy a drink to do a set in front of a bunch of other sad comics. And, um, you know, eventually you find a groove, you find people to network with, and you start getting in, And but that just takes a very, very long time. Tushar, part of what comes through so powerfully in the documentary is how stand-ups and um, people beginning a stand-up career 
must face rejection and to survive must get back up and go out and do it the <laughs> next night. I, I mean, mean, you say beginning. It's not. It's true for even successful comics. They are still struggling. They still get the thumbs down all the time. I mean, it is a it is a life of getting you know being okay with taking it to the face, if you will. <laughs> Ooh, and um, you had a very um, lucrative, or at least. Um, traditional mainstream job mm -hmm. that you left to pursue your love of comedy in the film you um, you touch upon how you revealed that to your mom and dad mm -hmm. would you talk about that <laughs> yeah sure so um, I was working in New York uh, advertising job um, in basically digital advertising and you know going in and starting doing open mics looking at it retrospectively it was one of it's a very dumb move to say I'm gonna quit my job and do comedy you know a year in <laughs> just thinking about me now I'm kind of like what were you thinking but I had this thing of like oh I'm good I'm gonna do it and um, I ended up kind of loving it so much that I stopped investing in <laughs> in work it's one way to say it. And uh, I ended up getting fired. And But my, my family didn't know about it yet. And I was visiting them in Huntsville. And so I flew down and they thought I was there for a weekend. I really was there for three weeks because I had booked that, you know, that travel. And I we went to Costco <laughs> as a family to buy me things for, for New York. Aww. And we came back and um, I gathered the family around and we don't do this. This is we don't have like full house moments in our family where we're like gather around everyone. I have something to say. So I did that for the first time ever, and I basically said, "Mom and Dad." And I, told, I had told my sister, and she was freaking out because <laughs> you know my dad is not you know he had he he passed, but he you know he had let's just say tension issues when it comes to stuff. So I, we didn't know how he was going to react. And he was this very distinguished research scientist. Yes. Um, yeah, he's a you know NASA research scientist. And I'm coming at him from this other world that he's not familiar with. But I told him, I said, Dad, you know, I'm not looking for money or even uh, permission. I'm just telling you this is what I'm doing. And this is my dream. And I want to do this. And um, my mom, of course, she she was fine with it, and as, as long as I'm healthy and happy, she she doesn't care what I do. You know, fundamentally it's as a, a mother, good yeah. mother, <laughs> she's a great mother. And my father was, I think, fundamentally proud of my proclamation of I'm doing something because that's good to hear from, I guess, your kid. Uh, but at the same time, he was very confused as to like, okay, what does that mean? How are you going to make money? What is the path to success? Yada, yada, yada. And I obviously didn't have any answers to that. And I didn't, I mean, I know now, which is, a, what, 15 years later, that this is kind of what you have to do. It's a slow climb. You have to, don't don't quit, essentially, and keep doing it. Um, but he was genuinely confused because it's, I mean, from his perspective, he came here to get a stable life for me and my sister, fundamentally. And I go and I you know, I'm doing one of the most unstable things you can possibly do, just enter the world of arts. So, mm -hmm. um, but he he was just concerned for me in terms of what's my plan, and then, of course, money. You know, how is it going to be money? Because 
once again, even successful comics, you know, on the way up, they're going to inherently just break even unless you catch a huge break, which is rare. Tushar, in the film, you describe the tour you went on as my two worlds colliding. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about some of your impressions of those two worlds colliding. I'm thinking in particular of your conversation with the man who married the plant. <laughs> that was my cousin. Um, yes, the the two worlds colliding is in the sense that I, you know, I'm I'm I was just drawn to the idea of doing stand up in India because it's something that I had been doing for years and years and years, and here I perform for a lot of. Uh, you know, Indian audiences, so Indian organizations and weddings and conferences and whatever that is. And those are the same people who migrated from there. So I'm like, oh, in India, it'll be an amazing thing to go there and um, explore that world. So, But with that, my cousin, Anshu, he, he was kind of our, he becomes our de facto tour guide. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, where Christianity kind of reigns true. And at home, we're, we're Hindu and, you know, exploring Hinduism through my cousin. So he's the senior referring to is um, we went to a priest. We went to an astrologer to, to get my chart read, uh, which is something that happens a lot in Indian culture. And we got this chart read and it said a bunch of things and um, terrifying, terrifying things. things. In preparation for this meeting with the astrologer, I, I asked my cousin, Anshu, you know, what is this about? What, how did how does this how did this happen and he tells me a story that um when he had his chart read that uh he essentially was uh, unlucky and this marriage you know whoever he marries will have bad luck so they they married him to a plant <laughs> i know <laughs> I know, I know. It is a ridiculous thing. And he's telling me this, and it's just, what? And he said it so casually, and he said it so matter-of-factly, and it's just, you know, that's the type of stuff where my worlds are colliding. I'm thinking, this is this is fundamental. It's my cousin. It's my first cousin. It's my, It's as close to my culture as you can get it. And if I had not moved to America and grew up there, I... That's me. I would be talking about that. But I have this reference of America where it's like, listen, that is the one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. And why can you even, why do you even conceptually toy with this being because a real thing? Because all of his bad luck was then passed down to the plant so he could actually marry well, a real person. Well, you know, without getting into his personal life. His bad luck did not go away. Oh, I'm <laughs> so, sorry. To sorry to do it. And I, I know the plant but, died. But <laughs> the plant, his wife, his first wife died. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, the but, plant. Yeah, but just that idea of uh, um, that is a real thing that, that a lot of people there believe in. And I have the privilege of saying that is that's dumb. And at the same time, I, I want to get my, I got my chart read. I'm interested in what they're saying. Of course, because yeah. it's fascinating and who knows what might be true. And thinking about your worlds colliding, there were more than just two worlds colliding. I mean, here you're also exploring um, your father and this brilliant 
research, literally a rocket scientist, mm-hmm. who is a devout Hindu and doesn't reject all those um, mysterious mm-hmm. aspects of the culture. Well, speaking of Huntsville and um, space, we have a clip from your stand-up routine <laughs> in San Francisco where you're talking about experiences growing up in Alabama. I got adopted by a pack of rednecks uh, when I was there. They kind of took care of me, taught me their ways, racism and obesity. Uh, <laughs> and I had a friend named Robert, he was like, he was like, hey, too sharp, man, hey, too sharp. Tell me a cuss word in Hindi. I'm like, why do you want to know that? Like, well, next time I see some Indian, I'm just going to yell that out. It's like, okay, that's a pretty good plan. Are <laughs> right, you want the best Hindi cuss word? Here you go. <laughs> Those are the Indians laughing. <laughs> so you had a wealth of material to mine being from an Indian family in Huntsville, Alabama, which, although it's filled with PhDs and brilliant people from all over the world, is also in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I think what is wonderful in the film is that you really went to India to find or to discover your true identity as an American. Yeah, in that sense, I'm kind of like a privileged white girl from this country to go to India and find myself. Oh, I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way. But along the way, there there were some very interesting experiences um, pursuing comedy. Would you tell tell us some of what you some of the advice you got from professionals there? Because you thought hey, the stand-up scene is so young here, I'll be an elder. Right. I went into that tour thinking that just the fact that I've been... So comedy in in India started in 2009 in the the sense that there's a physical place to do American-style stand-up. And, um, you know, I went in thinking, I've been doing this longer than this scene has existed, and thus, by that logic, I should be better than everyone and the movie, obviously, part of the movie <laughs> highlights that it is not that easy because I'm battling against the fact that this is an audience that it's just a different beast of its own. Uh, the scene is different. Um, and, and with that, the best advice I got uh, was from the godfather of comedy in India, who's Russell Peters. Uh, I got to sit with him and interview him actually here in Atlanta. Um, and the advice that he gave, and it really resonated was when you go there you're american don't forget you may look indian you may think you're indian but to them you were never going to be indian and that adds another layer of confusion because to confusion me confusion and hurt i should i'm going back to my you know in yeah. alabama i'm not american and then i'm in india I'm an Alabamian? Like, what, you know, that's why it's just, that's why it was a little confusing, because I went in thinking, they'll get me. And they they shouldn't. Why should they get me? I grew up in Alabama. I grew up in a whole different thing. And so what it took me a long time to figure out uh, was that what they're interested in is not my 
take on India. They are interested in what my take on growing up in America is. And obviously that takes, once again, you fall on your face a thousand times and you're like, oh, this this is what they, that audience kind of, this is how I need to handle that audience. Because then you come back here, they want to hear about the thing in India. (laughs) So it's fascinating. It's a never-ending trove of material to, to mine from. It is leads to why people like me who grew up in America, they're called American-born confused desis, desis being Indian. They, we are labeled that because we're born here and we're literally confused. We're, <laughs> we don't have an identity. And that's, but, that's true for most immigrant groups to some degree. But um, just about everyone is an immigrant except those who were Mayflower. Ens- enslaved <laughs> yeah, or um, American... Oh, it must be so annoying every time Christopher Columbus is invoked and we know that American Indians, the native tribes, right, right. Um, I mean, those are the real Americans. Everyone's an immigrant, <laughs> aren't they? I think so. I think that's the probably the right way to look at it. Um, okay. I, you know, Alabama, the, you know, we, we are the... Uh, it is the buckle of the Bible Belt in some ways, and just what's happening—not to get into the politics, because I'm not a political comic or anything—but just what's happening here, where they're saying you do not, you know, get out of my country. It's like it's not—it's not your country, our country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's something that that's kind of gross in that way. But that being said, you know, it has afforded me a fun just growing up in this kind of. This world has afforded me an interesting point of view, and that's what I plan to spend the rest of my comedy career kind of trying to explore. Comedian Tushar Singh, his documentary American Hasi, is available now for streaming on YouTube, Vudu, and iTunes. Finally, a New York connection to Atlanta via puppets. Last week, the International Puppet Fringe Festival returned to New York City with over 40 puppet troops. This year, the Puppet Fringe Festival was dedicated to Atlanta's own Vince Anthony, founder of the Center for Puppetry Arts, a featured art show called Vince Anthony's Legacy is on display at New York City's LES Gallery through the end of this month. Anthony opened Atlanta's Center for Puppetry Arts in 1978 alongside Jim Henson and Kermit the Frog. Since then, The center has had millions of visitors, inspiring and educating the community with puppets and marionettes from all around the world. New York City's Puppet Fringe Festival continues virtually through the end of August, and you can learn more on their website, puppetfringenyc.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Randy Jane Rosenberg on the new Moda exhibition, Survival Architecture and the Art of Resilience. 
If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.